Okay, thank you. Okay, well, last week we got in, well, two weeks ago, uh, before Easter, uh, ended chapter 9, into chapter 10, and what chapter 10 does basically is God repeats the fact that he's going to send Assyria, use the nation of Assyria, against what kingdom? The northern. Okay, who is he going to, in about 120 years after this, he's going to use what kingdom against Judah or the southern kingdom? Babylon, and that's the famous one where the temple will be destroyed and they're carried off captive and all that. But he, he reiterates or repeats the uh, unleashing uh, Assyria against the northern. And if you see in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 5, where it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hand my indignation. See, it's his staff. I will send him against an ungodly nation, against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize, to spoil, to take the prey. We're going to see that Assyria is going to try to come down south, and we'll look at this next week. They're going to surround Jerusalem, but God is going to miraculously intervene. It's, it's really spectacular uh, how he's, and he pushes Assyria back, basically saying it's not the time that the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and Judah, will be destroyed or uh, led captive but Assyria will uh, come against the northern kingdom. And that's approximately in the year 720 BC. And he goes on to say, verse 10, chapter 10, as my hand has found the kingdom of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Syria, Samaria, I have done to Samaria and her idols. And again, so shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? He's saying, I'm doing it to the northern kingdom. I'll do it to you if you don't repent, you know, especially with idolatry. Uh, because why? The, when the people came into the land, God had told the Israelites, don't learn the ways of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. Don't, don't bow down to their carved images. Don't set up the sacred groves. Don't go into these occultic systems, uh, Baal worship and child sacrifice and all this. And But they do. You know, they... They kind of absorb it. But are they still religious? When we looked in the earlier chapters, they're still a religious people. You know, they still have the temple. They still have the sacrifices. But they still have the sacred groves, the high places, and these pagan religions. They're religious, but they're not righteous. Okay, this is a very important point. They're religious, but not righteous. And God uses his prophets to call them back to himself, to repent. Any thoughts on any of what's kind of, it's kind of an overview as we pick it up here. Uh, now, w what is interesting as you go down in verse 20 of chapter 10, it says, it should come to pass in that day <clears throat> that the remnant of Israel, northern, and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In other words, as a result of this coming judgment, they'll, they'll return to the Lord or they'll cry out to the Lord. But this phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is very important. We're going to see it's mentioned several times in the book of Isaiah. Um, but it's very important when Jesus comes because it's a title uh, that is assigned to Jesus, uh, particularly when he's dealing with demonic and that, like... In Mark, early Mark, when he's casting the demons out, the demons actually cry out what? Do you remember what they cry? What do we have to do with thou, Holy One of Israel? See, they recognize the, the, the Holy One. 
So we're going to pick up on this title of uh, Jesus uh, used here 600 years before Jesus comes. Um, then it says in verse 21, chapter 10, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That verse 21 is very important because this is God, and that's the same title used in chapter 9 when it says in verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, government, will be, his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now why this has current relevance is because Jehovah Witnesses will say, look, chapter 9, clearly it's, it's messianic, it's a title of Jesus, a child is given to us, a son is, but they'll say it's just Mighty God, it's not Almighty God. But that same title used in chapter 9 is, a, is applied to God here in chapter 10. Do you, you see that? So if they ever knock on your door and use it, what do you have? Uh, <laughs> say, let me just hit it. Um, <clears throat> but what you're seeing here now is this is where God says uh, he's going to come and basically he's going to, verse 33, chapter 10, he says, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop the bow with terror. Those with high stature will be hewn down. The haughty will be humble. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. It, he uses this metaphor of cutting down trees. You know, they're high, they're lofty. It suggests pride and all that. But it says in that time, God's going to lop down the trees. All this is just going to... Uh, Isaiah used a lot of poetry and metaphor, but he's using this. But it go, it, it'll go into chapter 11 real nicely when we get this image in our head of, of trees that are chopped down. All these mighty ones, these kings that uh, Isaiah addresses, and they think they're so big and, and proud, and he levels them. Boom, boom. And that opens chapter 11 with this in mind. If somebody would read chapter 11, uh, verse 1, 1 and 2. Okay, thank you. So here we have this being mindful of those down trees, so to speak. If you ever cut a tree down, we had to take some down over the years in front of our house. You're left with a stump. You know, you just nowadays they actually kind of remove the stump. But there's this idea, there's this will grow out of the roots. We're going to study this more that what's left, and when he says Jesse, stem of Jesse, what's Jesse referencing? father of David. Okay, he's the father of David. Now, uh, I just want to bring this up. I don't know if anybody read this this past week. It's been on the news a little bit, even on um, some of the regular stations. But they found this seal, they call it a bulla, the plural is boule. Uh, but in the ancient times, they would sign documents. They would, it was a seal on documents and legal. But this one has Isaiah's name on it. And, and it says, uh, the clay seal from the 8th century B.C. that was discovered in Jerusalem, excavated, may bear the name of the biblical prophet Isaiah, according to a new art, biblical archaeology. Uh, the article titled, Is This the Prophet Isaiah's Signature? Author uh, suggests that the ancient Hebrew script impressed in the damaged half oval of clay may have once read, belonging to Isaiah the prophet. Now this, this is significant that they actually found what he may have sealed, you know, stamped some of his uh, 
a prophetic letters with. You see, we don't. Yes, please. Did you say earlier that Isaiah was in the government when we first opened up Isaiah? He may have been. Of course, we know he's close to the kings because he goes to them and to counsel. But we know that they found a seal of Hezekiah. That's well known, you know. But here, what this is interesting is that this has Isaiah's name on it, and it's from that time period. Here's, a, I think, this is a larger shot of it. Uh, it's just interesting, you know, that this this is what happens as as time goes on. Archaeologists prove not that the Bible needs proof, but it, you get all these evidences keep coming forward uh, that it's as the Bible declares it to be. You see. Um, so uh, that brings us into this famous uh, prophecy here. Notice, it, back to chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Does somebody have a different translation for rod? A shoot. Okay, uh, this is a poor artist. But the idea, you have to stump. <laughs> I, I googled up, like, this is the best one I came up with. You, you, you got the idea. You won't forget this. Guaranteed. You got the stump. The, the, the stump represents what? What tree? No, no, no. What tree? He was talking about deforesting the Assyrian, Hezekiah, all these guys. But what, what tree has been lopped off at this time in Israel's history? Judah. The Davidic tree. You know, they're controlled, but they're... This thing, this was once high and lofty with David and then his son Solomon has now been cut. But God is not done with the Judaic line, with the Davidic line. There's a famous one coming known as the son of David. And that's the little shoot. That, that, now this is a very important uh, when you study Bible prophecy or, or things that uh, foretell a coming Messiah. Because why? By all appearances, this, this famous uh, royalty is, we, we don't know royalty today. We don't live, I mean, you still have it in England to a degree. Uh, we lived in Thailand for years. We still had a king there. But it's, it's really important how people identify with the monarchy and the king. Well, it's gone here. But here God is saying, there's this little, this little shoot, this little branch is going to come up. And this, this little branch, it says here, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is a person. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. doesn't say a dynasty, uh, 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 an organization, a people group. It's singular, him. Note, that's notable. And then it has, depending how you count it, there could be seven if you count the Spirit of the Lord uh, rest upon him the spirit of wisdom of understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord his delight shall be in the fear of the lord okay so it tells all these qualities of what a real monarch is okay they've been dealing with remember ahaz hezekiah all these guys that they did right but then they did wrong and they led israel astray here's the what we would call the perfect king these are the qualities in the perfect king and so when you study this, and um, look, stay in Isaiah for a moment, just turn to Isaiah 53, verse 2. I just want to develop this theme of the branch or this stem that's coming forth. Isaiah 53. Um, 
and maybe somebody could read it's Isaiah 53, verse 1 and 2. One and two. One and two is good. Who has believed what they heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So here we see this one again, this little branch. You know, it's, we're near in springtime, I think. Uh, uh, you look out and you see these little shoots that are starting to come up. That's kind of what you're seeing here. And he says, well, who's believed our report? He, notice, it's a person. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Okay? As a root out of dry ground. Again, it suggests something. It looks insignificant initially. It doesn't look that important let's, initially, so to speak. He has no form nor comeliness. What does this suggest? Yeah, he wasn't notable. You know, I mean, figure when Jesus was, in, when he was betrayed by Judas, somebody had to go point him out. It, whereas in the Old Testament, sometimes they'll mention, like Joseph was handsome, or King Saul was very tall, he was head and shoulders, or Sarah was very beautiful, you see? But of our Lord, he, he's, he's, uh, he's not Jim Caviezel playing in the Passion of the Christ. You know what I'm saying? He's every man. He's, he's kind of... If I don't know, like average man in terms of appearance. Um, and it says there was no, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. But notice verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And, as, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Um, again, it goes into the famous Isaiah 53. But it goes to this point of this stem or this branch. I mean, he really, even the birth of Christ, when you think in Bethlehem, in a stable, a manger, you know, all of these kind of comings, and he, it kind of grows up in obscurity in Nazareth. Now, what's interesting, but we won't get in today, branch in the Hebrew is netzer, N-E-T-Z-E-R, netzer, little dry, little branch. But they feel uh, the root word, they think, is where you get the word Nazareth, Nazareth, you know, uh, I won't get into that today, but there's a very interesting study done on that. And that's why uh, they say, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's kind of a lowly, despised place. I mean, it's a built-up city today if you go there. Uh, but that's, you know, this idea he was a Nazarene wasn't an esteemed place to come from. You know, he was kind of humble. And um, what's, what's interesting there, too, uh, that's what's on the cross, you know, the king of the Jews, the Nazarene. And often, I don't know if you remember when uh, in the Iraqi war in Fallujah and that, when the, uh, the, the Muslim terrorists were going around, what were they putting on the doors? What were they, do you remember what they were painting on the doors of Christians, communities? Arabic Pardon me? Arabic and for what? The Nazarites. The Nazarites. You can buy these t-shirts where you self-identify that I'm a Nazarite, meaning you're a Christian, you're of the Nazarene. But it goes back, I don't want to stretch it too much, but it goes back to this idea. Any thought on any of this? Um, but it, it, it's, it's, they would mark that on the doors. So that people would go through town, they go, no, okay, that's, that's one there. That's. 
is a, is a Christian. He's an, of the Nazarene, you know, part of the Nazarene. Okay, so he's staying in, um, here we see this idea of, again, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Now, if you go to the next book, uh, Jeremiah, chapter 23, Jeremiah chapter 23, and look at, um, again, we're staying with this theme of the, of the branch. Um, verse 5 through 6. I'll write this down to Jeremiah 23. You see this, it's developing this whole theme of the branch. Now here, it says, behold, the days are coming, it's future. I will raise up to David, meaning again, the house of David, uh, the tribe of Judah, that dynastic line, he's coming out of that line, a branch, a branch of righteousness, a king. Again, Isaiah chapter 11 is dealing with kings, right? A king, uh, he shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. It is days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name he will be called, what? The Lord our righteousness. This is, this is really incredible when you get these prophecies about the branch embedded in Isaiah, Jeremiah, we're going to see in a minute in Zechariah. Any thoughts on this? But do you see how, yes, Kathleen. Pardon? Oh, well, it's first and second coming. No, well, here's what you're getting. When he comes the first time, he comes as a king, does he not? I mean, that's not a trick question, but I'm just saying this. Does Jesus enter into the human condition as a king? Yeah. Even Gentiles call him a king at his birth. When the wise men come from the east, Gentiles, and say, where is this king of the Jews to be born? At his death, a Gentile by the name of Pilate will declare him to be king. Maybe facetiously, but he says right up there, king of the Jews. You see? He was a king at his birth. He's a king at his death. When he comes in on Palm Sunday, and he's allowing them to declare him king, Psalm 118, you know, he's, he's, he's coming as a king. Even in his first time, but again, he comes not, not to be served, but to serve and, and, and to offer his life a ransom for everyone. Well, I agree with you, Kathleen. When he comes the second time, he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords, right? But he comes. No, it's not now, but what I'm saying is both near and far fulfillment of prophecy. Is that, for example, when Jesus comes and, and declares himself king, well, if you're a king, show us. Show us you have authority. 
And if you study the Gospels, what is Jesus as a king showing he has authority over? Nature. He can calm the wind. He can, he can, the, the, the waves are still. What else? Demons. Demons say, what do we have to do with thee, thou holy one of Israel? What else? Death. Jesus never encounters a corpse he doesn't raise. Study the gospel. He's called, he's, he doesn't give life, he is life. He is the resurrection and the life. So he's got power over death. These are, he, he's displaying authority, you know, in a very limited sense in that three-year span of his ministry. What else? Death, demons, nature, huh? Sickness. Okay. He can restore. Leprosy, you know. Uh, he, he owns time. He'll tell you the future. He says, I'm going to tell you before it happens so that after it happens, you believe in me. You know, he's, he's Lord. Lord of what? He's Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 13. You know, you want to, <laughs> I'm just saying, he's, to your point, Kathleen, he, in a limited sense, he comes as a king displayed, but in an ultimate sense, at his second coming, then he comes and all things are restored. Satan is cast out. Nature Harmony is restored to the cosmos, so to speak. Somebody has the so choice. Would you say he's more of life and death because he can provide man food. I mean, that's, you know, and, but he can also bring life, take away life. Yeah. Everything is life and death. Yeah, certainly. What I'm coming back to is I'm trying to connect what we're seeing in Isaiah 11 about the branch runs through the Old Testament and finds its fulfillment in Christ. And he'll use this imagery of a plant where, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You know, he'll use this kind of uh, imagery uh, of a plant later on. We'll see that in the New Testament. Yes, Richard. Yeah, right. Now, now, don't forget, again, when he comes and, and, you know, he declares the gospel and he says, take this gospel to the ends of the earth. But where is it headquartered? Where does that peace first come? Where does that new covenant get initiated? Jerusalem, in Judah, in Jerusalem. Uh, Israelites from up north and from the south and from, they come together on Pentecost. So they are receiving, uh, granted, it's partial of that fulfillment here. Does that make sense? But ultimately, I agree, there's a near and a far fulfillment of, of these claims in, the, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, etc. Any other thought? Yes, Kathleen. It did say when Christ came, there was peace. Well, there was Pax Romana. The, the Romans, one thing they were good at doing is keeping peace. They killed people to do it, but they would keep it. I mean, it just, yeah. I mean, that was one of the reasons the gospel could spread. Number one, you had this ease of travel, and you, they also built roads. And that was a big reason that the gospel could go. And the other thing, of course, was the Greek language, which was perfectly fitted for the New Testament, you know, these concepts and these kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're looking here. At, I just want to jump ahead. This will be repeated in Jeremiah 33, 15. We won't look at that now. But I do want us to go to, uh, for a moment, uh, to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah. Hi. 
near the end of the Old Testament, actually. And to stay with this theme. Or let's go to, to, to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. I want to put this on the board. Um, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you. This is a vision this prophet is having. Hear, uh, uh, for they are a wondrous sign. Behold, I am sending future forth my servant, who? The branch. Okay. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its description, says the Lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Uh, so here again we see this idea, this coming one that's called a branch. Yes? It, it, this is wrapped up in prophetic imagery with the seven eyes suggesting he's omniscient. You know, he sees all these. So it kind of moves us through. Staying in Zechariah, if you look at uh, chapter 6, Zechariah chapter 6, and... Um, Verse 12. Verse 12 and 13, if somebody would like to read that. Zechariah chapter 6. Tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. He will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony. Okay, now again, this is loaded. I mean, what's suggested by a priest on his throne that doesn't fit? Huh? You cannot have a king who's a priest. That's how King Saul got in trouble. Remember, he offered sacrifices and he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to stay. Who is the only one in the Old Testament that could fulfill both these offices of both king and priest? Melchizedek. You see how this fits the king on the throne here, kind of? But he's called the branch. How many have studied the branch before in the prophetic coming forward? Well, you're doing it now. Okay. That's good. That's it. It's always a first time for everything. But, uh, but does it make sense? I guess that's what I'm looking at. Does it kind of follow how God unfolds his revelation to us and it all finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ? It's amazing. I, I really think, I mean, when you look here, the man whose name is Branch, from his place he shall branch out. Look at, look at today now how he's branched out. 2.3 billion people on the planet are some way, somehow, named the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're all believers, no, but nevertheless, it branched out, right? Uh, he shall build the temple. Well, what temple is God building? What temple is Jesus building today? Upon this rock I will. Who's the chief cornerstone? Who's, who, who's the stones on top of that? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers. Who's the living stones that are put into that temple? We are. He is the master builder. He's building. Okay? And then it says, uh, He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. It's His glory. 
Uh, he shall sit and rule from his throne. He shall be a priest at his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them. So here, here again, we, we have this idea. He's ruling. He's reigning. The, the important thing here is he, he comes from David. Okay? He, as it says in Isaiah, it's from the stuff of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. So he comes. He's the son of David. He has that title, right? But we're going to see he, he is the root of David. Turn, turn to the last book of the Bible, last chapter, just for a moment, uh, and, and look at this. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, um, verse 16. That's somebody would read that. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Okay, thank you. He's the root of David, but he's also descended for what they would call the son of David. What is implied by root? He's before Origin. He's before David. What's implied by son of David or descendant of David? He's after David. Got it? How can he be that? How can he be the root of David? Remember how he says, before Abraham I am? Well, if before Abraham I am, then he must be before David, because David came after Abraham. But how can, how can he be before David, but how could he be after David? Okay. To the human condition into space and time when he incarnation at the incarnation and what is very important and it comes from the lineage of david right he's got to be from the lineage of david because that's the kingly line and if you study it we won't go there this morning but in second samuel it says one day god says to david i'm gonna i'm gonna give a king on your throne and his throne and his reign will be forever and ever so they knew they were looking for this son of david but they couldn't figure this out. And this will become a crucial point in the Gospels, in, in, G, in the life of Jesus, if you turn to Matthew 22. Any thought on any of this before? I don't want to go too quick on this. Pardon me? What's the answer to that question? On Joseph's side or Mary's side? Both. Both. Why? Because, I mean, he, he wasn't naturally born to Joseph, of course. His heavenly father is his father. But there's legal rights implied that he must come from the father, too, as well as Mary. Uh, both are Davidic, you know. 
So this is near the end, Matthew chapter 22. This is near the end of Jesus' life and ministry. And um, what happens here is, uh, starting in verse 41, he, the Pharisees constantly, and Sadducees constantly were coming to Jesus and trying to bait him. Remember, they, it even says they try to trap him. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? What do you say? We caught this woman in adultery. She should be stoned. What do you say? They're always looking. Now this changes here. And it says in chapter 22, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now he turns the table a little bit. He says, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Okay. Please say, okay. Who do you, who do you say is the Messiah? Who, who's, who's descendant? Whose son is it? And they say, son of David. Okay, right. That's, there's a lot of scripture in the Old Testament that says that. Then he says to them this. How then does David in the Holy Spirit call him Lord? When he says in the Holy Spirit, what's, he, what's implied there when he's talking to these religious leaders? Pardon me? Yeah, in other words, this isn't David's thought. He didn't have this interesting thing, well, I'll write this psalm. No, he says this is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspired him to, to say this and to write this. What? How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Do you see what he's saying there? How would you repeat that in your own words? It's like he's playing high-level theological chess here, is what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's moved the piece in place here. What's he saying to them in, in, in your own language? In, in, you know, he's, he's, what, what, what is he implying here? He says, okay, you said that when the Messiah comes, he's got to be from the son of David. He's got to be from that lineage. We know that. But what's he saying when he takes him to Psalm 110 and says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make God. What is he saying there about the Christ or the Messiah? He's above David and before David. And he's called what? Lord. Do you understand? He, he said, how can David say, my Lord, God, God said to my Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, sit at my right hand, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, other places, sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. How can he be the son of David and how can he be God? That's the issue. Yes, Joyce. So, uh, I mean, it's just come from Psalm 110, this, this statement, but is this a mirroring picture of the Messiah? that when the Lord said to David, is, are they the, the Pharisees saying, well, this was said to David so that he would be king, but it's a mirror of a bigger picture. Is, is, and they're not getting that? What, what, what is it they're getting? Notice their response. He <laughs> says to them, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, he's posing this predicament. What, what, what should have their response have been? He is God come in the flesh. You are Lord. Or like Thomas when he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. That should have been their response if they want to go with the scripture. You know, this is high level revelation to them at this point because Jesus is standing right in front of them. And what's their response? 
Didn't say anything. Couldn't. Couldn't. Because they could not deny the scripture. But were they looking at as you would refer to a king as my lord? No. no. You, you, this is, so, uh, all right, turn to Psalm 110 for a moment. And then, or, or better yet, go to Psalm 102, then we'll go to 110. Psalm 2, and then we'll jump to 110. Psalm 2. Two. Dose. Okay. Look at verse 1 and 2. Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and who else? What's, the, what's another word for the anointed one? In the Old Testament, it's Mashiach. It's the Messiah, or the Greek is uh, the Christ, the Christo. Okay, so the people, the kings, think of even at his trial, Pilate, Herod, all these rules, they take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Clear. Then he says, why? Verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away. What are the people and the rulers and the Supreme Courts and everyone saying here? What are they saying in verse 3, basically? Freedom. We want to be our own God. We want to make the decisions. We declare. We don't want your restrictive cords, your laws, your commandments over us, okay? And what's God's response in verse 4? He laughs. He says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold him in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set, what? My king. Here's this royalty again. On my holy hill of Zion. Now it shifts a little bit here in terms of the personage. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Okay? Today I have begotten you, only begotten of the Father. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. What was one of Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? Give him all the nations if he bowed down. So you see the, the, the linkage here. The ends of the earth. He says, I'll give you, you're going to have the ends of the earth for your possession. Again, when he comes back as king of kings, it's all his. It's all his now. It's just, under, it's been absurd, you know, rebe rebellion. He says, and then he says, um, you shall break them with a rod of iron. This is the judgment. This is second coming stuff. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's, you see, this is, I mean, one of the most terrible titles, of, of uh, paradoxical titles in the book of Revelation is the wrath of the lamb. That's interesting. Okay, it says, now, here's God's plea, the Holy Spirit pleading, verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath, whose wrath? The Son's wrath is kindled but a little. Okay, that's what you're seeing, however you interpret the book of Revelation. You see the wrath of the Lamb being poured. He says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Are we a blessed people? Why are we a blessed people? We put our trust in him. You understand the, how this follows through? That is, that is deity. That is 
there's no king, earthly king, that's been promised. I'm going to give you all the kings, all the nations. Men have tried to get that, the Caesars and Napoleons, the Hitlers, but there's never been a prophetic promise that this guy is going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords except Jesus Christ. Any thought on that? Do you see? Okay, now let's go to Psalm 110. And this is what Jesus was referencing there in Matthew 22. And if somebody would read verse 1 and 2, please. Sound familiar? Sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Very, very close to Psalm 2. Now look at verse uh, 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent or change. So he says, you are a priest forever. What's Jesus' role now? What is his, his office right now, right now today? What is his office? Harvey? It's a priestly role. He ever liveth to what? Make intercession for us. See, he comes to the earth. You know, you have the three anointed offices in the Old Testament. King, priest, prophet. He comes to the earth, in a sense, in a prophetic role. You know, he's fulfilling prophecy. He's giving prophecy. He's coming. And then he offers himself up, the start of his priestly role, if you will. He's the sacrifice, but he's also the high priest offering the sacrifice. Then he ascends to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. In a sense, that's why when we pray, we often will say, we pray to our Father, empowered, directed by the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. I'm not saying that's required, but that's, that's how we come to him. We, we have no authority. I have no authority to go into the presence of a holy God unless I come into the authority of what Jesus provided for me. Does that make sense? I mean, if somebody gives you a check for a million dollars, you look at the amount and everything else in the bank. What is the most important thing that the bank's going to look at? Who signed it? Whose authority? Okay. So, too, Jesus gives us that authority. He's that high priest that ever lived to make intercession for us. And that's why it says, you're a priest forever according to the order of? What's unusual about Melchizedek or special? He's both priest and king. Who gives tithes to Melchizedek? Abraham, which suggests the lesser gives ties to the greater. The law is given ties to this Melchizedek character coming out of Salem, Jerusalem, city of peace. First time we see that mentioned in the book of the Bible, in Genesis. And what does Melchizedek then give to Abraham? Blessing, but something else. Bread and wine. What do we have this morning? Okay. What I'm getting at. The, the, this is the Bible is a singular story, you know. It's one theme. Uh, we just are privileged people to be to have the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, and to be able to see how strong our faith really is. You know, I mean, it's, this this is almost like uh, the gift that keeps on giving. You know, <laughs> you study it, you learn. You know what I mean? It just keeps helping our faith to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, so there we see that whole idea of um, the root of David and then how this will become a challenging point 
uh, about our Lord that comes, you know, Micah chapter 5, it says, Oh, Bethlehem, after the little woman, out of you shall come forth him, birth, who is from everlasting, eternity. See? So you find out these things are clipped together in a lot of the different scriptures, the prophetic scriptures. Once you learn how to, from temporal to eternal, from he's entering in, and that's where, where people really goof up today because they either focus on the humanity of Jesus, i.e. Uh, Muslims, and they can't accept the deity. Can't, can't, or they'll focus heavily on the deity of Christ and they can't accept the fact that he's, you know, a uh, man. He was a man. Uh, you know, they say, well, how could he, how could our Lord, you know, say, if you see me, you've seen the Father, yet at another time you'll say, well, my Father is greater than me. Well, in his earthly ministry, he was limited by time and space. I mean, the Old Testament says God neither slumbers nor sleeps. What was Jesus doing in the boat on the way across Galilee? He was sleeping, okay? There's humanity, but he gets up on the boat, and what does he do with the storm and the wind and everything else? Calms it. There's his deity, okay? He says on the cross, I thirst, right? But what does he say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise, deity. So what I'm getting at, you see his combining of both his humanity and his deity. If you focus on one, you lose the other. If you focus on the other, you lose the other. Yes? Okay. 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 Let's go back to Isaiah. Yeah, that's where we started. Right. Okay. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 11. Any thoughts on any of this? Any comment? Any? Okay. Isaiah chapter 11. Um, now, again, what's interesting here is these countries, I mean, northern Israel, which was called Israel, and then the south, which is called Judah, they're in a rough place at this particular time. I mean, literally, the northern kingdom is just years before the Assyrians come and just scorched earth. It's just going to be terrible destruction. And the southern, they got maybe 110, 120 years before Babylon descends and just wipes out the temple and takes away captivity, you know, he takes away... And so, but through it all, even though God is, is sending these messages of judgment and wrath, and he's going to use these Gentile nations like a scepter and a rod against his own people, there's these elements of hope. There's like glimmers of hope, light, promise, uh, a remnant. You know, there's always got, always, it seems like even in his wrath, there's mercy. You know, he, he puts that mercy in there, that hope, that it's never too late kind of a thing. Does that make sense? It's never, it's never too late. So uh, back there, and he says in chapter 11, and we looked at that, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, verse 2. And again, this kind of harkens back uh, to um, Isaiah 61, where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound. That's Isaiah 61, and that's what Jesus opens his ministry with, remember? But it has this same thing about this anointed one. He's got the Spirit of God upon him. Does that, you see how Isaiah puts that together? That's how Jesus will open his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. He goes into the synagogue, he opens it up, he reads that, he closes it up, and he hands it, and he says, this day the, the scriptures are fulfilled in your own ears. And what do they want to do with them? throw him off a cliff, and he leaves Nazareth. Yeah. So is 
Well, see, some, some of these things, like when he goes into Isaiah 11, uh, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, verse 3, he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide equity for the meek of the earth, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Those things are, that goes beyond just a human king. Does that make sense? This is, this is big messianic stuff. Because you're saying his throne is everlasting, he speaks, and is, and is, you know, it says like in the end of the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes to judge uh, Mystery Babylon, and all, how does he destroy them? How, how, what does he do? Just opens his mouth. Just, you know, the sword of his mouth, it just slays them. It's not like a really a battle, he just, that, that's, that, that's that kind of language here. What he says, verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. You're not going to get that necessarily with an earthly king. And what, what's so important is this king from the root of Jesse is in contrast to the ungodly kings. That Remember we said Isaiah serves under uh, five kings, Ahaz, Hezekiah, these guys. They're ungodly. I mean, sometimes they do right, but then they do wrong. You know. And he's saying, here's the king. Here's the real king. Here's the king you want to look for. Uh, it's coming, but it's not now. And he says, and th this really is, it's, you see where he says, verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them, a cow and a bear. He's working with contrast here. He's got predator, the wolf, lies down with the lamb. I don't know how well the lamb sleeps at night, but I mean, you got, you got the, the wolf and the lamb. And then he brings the leopard with the young goat, the calf with the young lion. You see, he's, he's using this principle of contrast. And again, Isaiah, they call him the Shakespeare of the Old Testament because he's so big on poetry and, and metaphor as well as contrast. And what's suggested here is when this one comes, uh, the created order is restored. Now remember, in, Revel in uh, Genesis chapter 2, after God, sixth day, he created everything, and then he creates, he's finished. And he says, each day it is good. And what does he say at the end of the sixth day? He said it is very good. Okay? You don't have, in other words, everything is ordered, in the, not just man in his relationship with God, but creation itself is well-ordered. It's harmonic, you know, it's, it's the, the cosmos, you know, it's everything's, but when you get to chapter three in Revelation, after man disobeys God, turns his back on God, invites Satan in, and is self-directed, I will be likened to God, what breaks down? What first is man's relationship with God? God says the day you, Partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Did man die that day? Huh? What is the the Bible says in First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen? In Adam we all die. Ephesians chapter two verse one says what? We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. 
Man died that day. He was separated from God. Now, it took a while for his body to catch up. It would die also. It didn't have to, because within that Garden of Eden was what? Now, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there's also what? Tree Tree of life. And God protected a fallen man from partaking of that, you see? So what I'm getting at is man's relationship with God was broken, severed. It would be restored only when the God-man came and could restore. How about man's relationship with man? Who did Adam blame? Who did Eve blame? Serpent. Who did the serpent blame? No. No one. He didn't have a leg to stand on. But what I'm getting at, I'm going to close it a bit of. What I'm getting at, everything is broken. What now comes up out of the ground? Thorns and thistles. The very thing I'm worried about. Okay? Uh, man in his un- un- unnatural state was naked. There was no reason for shame or embarrassment. After that, God would clothe him. The first thing to die physically would be an animal. The innocent would die for the guilty. Blood would be shed. And, and man would be covered with that which God provided. And so you see that all the way through. The, the innocent dies for the, It's an atoning. It's covering blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And you'll see that all the way through the scripture. Yes, Didn't Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with their own works? The fig leaf? It's a good God point. Not accept that, so the animal had to die. They covered themselves. They covered themselves with fig leaves. They, and they hid in the shade of the garden. You know what I mean? They, 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 they estranged themselves from God. Uh, there's a couple of interesting items that man has always tried uh, and his own works uh, to hide his sin, guilt, and shame from God and hide from God. Whether it's philosophy, whether it's religious systems, works, you name it, man knows something's out of order and he tries to cover it. Okay? Now, it specifically says not any kind of leaves, but what? Fig leaves. Jesus only cursed one thing in his earthly ministry. Because why? It had no fruit equals life. It only had fig leaves. It spoke of national Israel that had no spiritual life. They only had a show of religion. Why? Man is insufferably religious from the beginning of time. Man loves religion. Man loves ritual. Man... Our problem is not religion. Our problem is relationship. That was lost on day one in the Garden of Eden. What Jesus comes to do is offer us that restored relationship. And ritualism, don't get me wrong, tradition ritualism, that, but if that's it, if that's fig leaf stuff. You know, it doesn't help. You can only accessorize a corpse so far. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, good work to this. We need life, you know, we need to do life. That's why my friend always says, Jesus did not come to die and rise from the dead to make nice people nicer. He, he came to make dead people alive. That's, that's the deal. Um, we'll pick up on this next week, but we're going to see that he restores order. And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 8 for a moment, um, this is a tremendous chapter in terms of victory and the Holy Spirit and relationship with God. Um, that which was lost is now regained. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's that idea 
We're not a condemned people if we accept his sacrifice and walk in the Spirit. And, but then it drops down to, um, look at verse 9, if somebody would read that, please. Romans chapter 8, I'll write this on the board. What does it say, that one verse? This is a very important verse. What is he saying, even to religious people, even to people that are in churches across this nation on a given day like today, that may think they're Christian, but what is, what is the definition of a Christian? Is the Spirit of God in you? See, that's, that's, that's why he says, if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to him. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in all human beings? No. We come into this world with the inherited fallen nature of our first father, Adam. But to as many, when it talks about Jesus, but John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as received him, to give him he gave the privilege or the power to become a child of God. That's why Paul will challenge the Christians in, in Corinth, a church, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. What's the test? Is Christ in you? unless you fail the test. I think this should be taught and preached continually because so many people think they're Christians because they do Christian things. I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I go to church, I put money in the basket, I say prayer. We're not a Christian because we do Christian things. We do Christian things because we're a Christian. Do you understand? Big, big difference. Actually, to do Christian things, moral, our morality, our charity, our, is an outflow of an inward change of nature. But if I'm relying on my outward things, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that in your name? And he'll say what? <laughs> Depart from me. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Any thoughts on this? It's just... Galatians 5, fruits of the Spirit. I mean, I think it's be specific, so you can know what yeah, the I Spirit mean, is in you, what it looks like, because some people don't know what it looks like. Well, that's problematic, too. I don't want to segue too much. If, I, if you were to ask a person, are they married? And they looked at you with a confused look and say, gee, that is a good question. <laughs> uh, I got this ring, and I know this, and I live with this. If they, if they can't say that they made this commitment to this other person at a given point, and that's drastically changed their life for the rest of their life, hopefully for the better, they should know that. You understand? They should know. So, too, if we had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and we committed our life to him, from that point onward, we should say, yes, I'm a Christian, not because of what I do, but what's been done for me. And I received that free gift. You understand? Yes. With that being said, is the Catholic Church Christian? Now you've got this guy saying there's no hell. I mean, now you Here's got... the thing. There's no building or denomination that's a Christian. It's individuals that are Christian. Presbyterian, Baptist, Catholic. The key is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Paul says what? I preach Christ and him crucified. 
what I try to do, even in our travels overseas, is try to equip people with the word of God that they can make these determinations of this denomination or they belong to this or that. But the, what I always bring it back to is Paul says, look, some say they're of Apollo, some say they're of Paul. This, <laughs> Paul says, I'm of Christ. That's the critical issue. Not as, to me, I, I'm a kind of a simple guy. What, do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you, okay, that's the critical issue. I mean, I'm a believer today because my mom prayed. You know, and she, you know, she went to, she wasn't Presbyterian, okay, she wasn't that, but she prayed for it. You know, that, that's why I believe I'm a Christian today. Yes, sir. You know, the Catholic Church, everything's by infusion. You earned it through their sacraments. A true biblical Christian is by grace through faith. It's imputed. Christ gives us his righteousness yeah. as a free gift through faith. Yeah, but recognize this. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist, Presbyterian. Do you have a relation? Just like Paul, when he was speaking to that church in Corinth, that was a Christian church in Corinth. Check it out, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He still asked them, are you a believer? Is Christ in you? There's, understand? there's, there's just no other way. I don't know, you know how to put it. Any other questions? We'll wrap it up. Yes, please. I'm sorry, Marsha. I'm sorry, Kim. I was thinking how, for me, when I think about those words, is Christ in you? For me, often I think, do I have a spirit of confession or a spirit of self-defense? Do I need a Christ? Well, I'm pretty good. Yeah, right. I don't think I do. And I, I think that has come back in every generation. And living with a spirit of confession takes my guard down and say, I, I need a Christ. I need him. He has come provided as opposed to, well, I'm pretty good. I said all right. Right. I think it's a good point. I mean, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, what is the greatest mystery hidden from all the ages is what? Christ is you, the hope of glory. How many temples were there at this time of Isaiah in Israel? How many temples were there where God dwelt? One. How many are in this room today? If you're born again, if you have a spirit, you're, you're, you're a temple of God, Paul says. You're a temple. You understand? That's powerful. I think we have to reflect more on this fact. Uh, I think we ought to be a little obsessed with the fact that we, in these earthen vessels, we hold this heavenly treasure. That's, that's the Christian. Okay? We could put names on it, and, you know, this denominate this, this, whatever. Yeah. Do you need to know the Bible? A little order, bit more. Do you need to know the Bible in order to have a relationship did you hear the question? Do you need to know the Bible to have a relationship with Christ? No. No. Paul didn't have a New Testament. What did the thief on the cross know? He knew about five major theological truths. One, he knew he was a sinner. Two, he knew he was going to die. Three, he understood he was being justly punished for what he did. Four, he recognized Jesus as Lord. Five, he knew there was an afterlife and Jesus could do something about that. But he knew too that he could trust in Christ to safeguard him into eternity. And when he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he understood him not only as Lord, but he says, your kingdom. He understood them, Isaiah, king. And Jesus says what to him? Truly I say to you, this day you'll be with me. Did he know much theology? I would suggest, yeah. 
Did he know the Bible well? I don't know. He was a thief or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, again, he couldn't do any good works. Literally, his nails were, you know, his hands were nailed. He couldn't even do one good work. But I don't want to use that as a prototype or a model. But I think once we come to Christ, we should know the Bible. I mean, we should learn. You know, Jesus says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word other by mouth. We, we, we studied the number of times in the Gospels, Jesus says to a Jewish audience, have you not read? What's implied in there, they should have. How much more are we resourced today to sit in a church like this with Bibles in our own language, uh, to go to your car and turn on 103.3? I mean, that station, the, the, some of the teaching on there is amazing. You know, I mean, we have, we're highly resourced spiritual people. I don't know if that goes to this, but we, we as a baby, as a baby Christian, we don't know much. That's why it says in Peter, as a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word. Jesus then talks as you mature bread. Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, says, I wanted to teach you deeper things, strong meat of the word, but you can't handle it. You see, there's, there's, there's milk, there's bread, there's meat. And we should be meat eaters in that it's sense. A well, here. <laughs> All right. Just a little louder. If I can add to that, and I am Catholic, and I appreciate all the comments, um, I'm Catholic, but I don't have a But I mean, a big, big thing is. Not the same uh, practicing of it, of course, but the same concepts of good works without love and meaningless and all the things you Well, good works, the issue, not just the Catholicism, but whatever, is that when we think that good works will make us worthy in God's sight. See, we're now the key here, and I've definitely got to close. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, Ephesians chapter 2. And that's where I think different denominations get in trouble, is because the people grow up thinking, well, if I do this and I don't do that and I do this, and I, but never have that relationship right, with so God. That's the without love. Good works without love. No, no, good works without salvation. So, so it goes like this. And that's definitely Okay, if I do... 100 good works, but I have no relationship with God. In other words, I'm not born again. I'm not a spirit of God. How much does that equal? Zero. Now, if I do one good work, I give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, I'm a, 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 a 
I'm spirit-filled, and I give one cupful of water, and I do it in Jesus' name, as are thousands, millions. How much reward do I have? That's the key. Great job. What about the Good Samaritan? What about the Good Samaritan? What about it? He didn't know anything about God. He did it with love. So what is God? God is love. So yeah, but you've got to be careful. God is love, but God is also holy. God is merciful, but he's also righteous. That's the necessity of the cross. But, See, but the person who helped the Samaritan do nothing or didn't believe, but he was considered much Right, and Jesus gives these examples, but the, the critical issue is salvation. The salvation is your critical issue. What must we do to be saved? Now, if we do good works, why do we need the cross and the resurrection of Christ? Because I know Buddhists, really, truly, pious, that did good works. These were good, moral people. They didn't drink it. I know Muslims that are very pious. You know, they pray to do this. But is that going to get them into heaven? No. Otherwise, Jesus didn't have to die. That's the difference between all other religions and Christianity. All of them give you information. Some of it is good information. But Jesus gives us transformation. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll pick it up. That's a good topic, though. I mean, we could discuss this. I will. Hey, we got at least six more classes to go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, any closing thoughts? Okay. Who would like to close us in a word of prayer, please? Thank you.